The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. This morning, may it be that, may it be encouragement, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to ask you to stand in honor of God's Word this morning, if you're able, uh, for about three verses of Scripture, starting in verse 11, going down to verse 14. Verse 11, excuse me, going down to verse 15. This is Hebrews chapter 2. This is our study. This is what we've had the last several weeks, our study of why did he come. We're in the book of Hebrews. This is installment number five. We're in a mini installment in the big installment, but we'll get there in a minute. Let's read the scriptures this morning. For he who sanctifies, for he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Verse 12, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, referring to Christ, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil or power of death, and verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's a meme out there on the internet where a pastor went like this, and he said, not today, Satan, not today. And he had like a sword that was his Bible. Look, we're not going to do anything crazy like that from the pulpit today. But I just want to tell you today that the kingdom you're a part of is on the winning team. The Chiefs lost. Oh, well. Satan lost. Oh, well. God lives forever. Amen. And that's what we know. This morning, my prayer is that you are encouraged to consider again what Christ has done for you and the practical implications, not only for this life, but for the life to come. Satan's got nothing on God because God stamped him out a long time ago. Will you pray with me this morning, and we'll talk about what this means for our lives and how it related to Hebrews and all the things we do. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you this morning. Lord, we love messages like this because it reminds us about who's in charge and who's not. And I thank you, Lord, that you are. You are the captain of our salvation. You are the one who raised your son from the dead. You are everything, Lord. And for that, we praise you and more. Give us wisdom now. Challenge us, encourage us, comfort us. May, may you be lifted high, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Would you be seated this morning? Well, as we come together... I, I, I had to look this up because it was a very interesting fact of, of, of just knowing what's out there. But there was a survey, and you'll, you'll see a picture of the Bible up here. But sometimes these surveys are very interesting. And I couldn't find one on this question. How many people actually believe on, about Satan? How many people? I had to go back 13 years. It's been that long ago, 2009. The last Olympics in Beijing was 2008. And fast forward 13 years to 2022. It's been that long. They asked this question to a Baptist church across Baptist churches. This was done by Barna, and they asked this question, do you believe that Satan is a living being? He's a real living being that the Bible talks about. Get these stats. Four out of 10 Christians strongly agree that Satan is not a living being as described by the Bible. Four out of 10. An additional two out of 10 Christians said 
they agree somewhat with the perspective that he is not a living being, but might be true if, if, if I believe it to be true, is what the quote says. A minority of Christians indicate they believe that Satan is real by disagreeing that with these other people, and they disagreed strongly, but only 9% actually believe that the Bible says that Satan is who he says, or the Bible says Satan is who he says he is. 9% of a 1,000 people. That's scary, guys. It harkens me back to my days at William Jewell when Dr. Chance went up in one of the classes and says, Satan's not real. He's just something that they told you to make you act better in churches and, and, and that sort of thing. It's crazy. Look, if you're a Christian, Satan is real. Let, let's, let's, let's not focus on him. God is real. Satan is real. Temptation is real. Forgiveness is real. Judgment is real. But I want you to know, Christian, Satan got us duped to the very thought thing if we think that he is not real. Heaven is for real, and it's not because a four-year-old kid went there supposedly and came back. Heaven is for real. Hell is real. But I want you to know Satan is either roaring or in stealth mode, but he's always active. Satan is real, and thanks to Jesus, he's ultimately laughable. Because Romans tells us that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath his feet. And if you're a youth group person and grew up in youth groups, you probably know there's a song attached to that. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath his feet. Boom, 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 boom. And, and that's what you used to do. I won't ask you to dance your Baptist, and that's what you do. But I want you to know I believe that Satan is real, and you should too. And I want you to know that's an oddly comforting belief for me, and here's why. Because it means we're not responsible for all the crazy evil of this world. It means someday that we'll kick Satan in the teeth about how he tormented us, and that's God's promise. That someday, as saints of God, you will judge in righteousness the world and all those who reject Christ and Satan himself, and he'll be thrown away forever. That's the promise. So this morning, how much authority does Satan have? What should our response be, and where does Jesus fit in all this? And you see this on the front of your bulletin, don't you? If you're taking notes, the big idea is that if you're a Christian, Satan, you can overcome the devil, not because you're stronger than him, but because Jesus has already defeated him. And that's the great reminder of Hebrews, is that, yes, I do believe there's a real devil, and I really believe he wants to destroy God's good creation. And he really does want to tempt you and try you and, and our church, too. You know, I posted on Facebook on Friday, some of you all saw this, there was a quote from a, a famous pastor, he's, a, he's, he's in our camp, by the way, uh, that he said that it wasn't adultery that sent churches into spiraling, it was gossip. And I put, what do you think about this? And it was, it was, it was if you're on my Facebook, you saw the responses. It was the opposite, is that adultery more than gossip. But what I want you to know, across the spectrum, Satan is going to take anything he can to destroy the people of God who gather together. He hates this right now. He hates that you're here today. He hates you. He hates your family. He hates your sons and your daughters. He hates your church. More so, he hates you, Jesus. But I want you to know, Jesus has crushed him out. He stamped him out. And I want you to know he's routed him out. And while the devil and the power are real, we know that Christ sealed his doom when he raised from the dead and died on that cross. And we know what Martin Luther said, too, that he's the Lord's devil, which is to say he cannot exceed the sovereignty of our creator, God himself. The devil's days are numbered, and on the day of Christ's return, he will be fully vanquished, finally vanquished. And through the gospel, you can partake of his devil-defeating power. I want you to know, for as real as Satan is, Christ is all the realer still. Can I say that again? For all the real Satan is, Christ is realer still. Aren't you grateful for that this morning?
we're in the midst of this little mini study about why Jesus came. If you weren't here last week, we're, we started in verses 5. We kind of got through verse 13. But I want you to know in the last couple of weeks, we've had this, and Amy will put this up. Why did Jesus come? He came to regain lost creation. It's from the last couple, last week. He came to make paradise lost, paradise restored. That was in verses 5 to 8. Last week, we also saw he came to redeem lost sinners. He came for you. He came for me. We partook of the Lord's Supper the same to do that. But he also came this week to rout the devil. You know what that word rout is? Some of y'all, when you see that phrase, you'll say, like, I love my mother. She grew up in rural Missouri. She says, root the devil. Because rout is root. You know that? Rural root, 756. I'm looking at John Moody, my Arkansas man. I know he has that little twang in him too. But this word is rout, right? It means he, he paved the way. He cleared him out of the way. Why did Jesus come? It was to restore creation, redeem lost sinners, but today to rout the devil. And I want you to see this morning, I want you to see two events he did that by and two amazing benefits that came from that. Two events that happened and two amazing benefits that came through that. The first historical event is this, the incarnation, the incarnation. You have your Bible, don't you? Look back at verse 14. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. And what this means is, is that Jesus himself, Jesus became like those he came to save. He became a man. That shouldn't surprise you this morning if you're a Christian. He came and became one of us. He became a man so that we could become like sons of men. The son of God became a man so we could become sons of God, lowercase s. And so he says here that this incarnation... And I even heard this last week on the radio after the Chiefs loss, is that, that in the first half, you know, Patrick Mahomes was incarnated with a super, you know, he was, he was maxed out superstar quarterback. And then in the second half, he was unincarnated. He lost himself in the midst of himself or something like that. But I want you to know that Jesus never lost himself in the midst of himself. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when he came, he came as one incarnated. He came and took on flesh. He partook of the same. And it says that he came in flesh and blood. You see that there in verse 13, your Bible may share, he shared in flesh and blood. He partook of flesh and blood. But when it says, therefore, he, the, the children share in flesh and blood, he's talking about you and me. Jesus became like one of us. He became so that we be, be, become as he is. But who's this children? The children here mentioned are what verses 12 and 13 mention. The children here are us. He became one of us. Who's the us? Literally, it's the elect. It's those who God has chosen out before the foundation of the world. Verse 11 says he sanctifies those who all have been sanctified by one source. Verse 12 says that these children are the brothers in the midst of the congregation. Verse 13 says, behold, I and the children God has given me. Who's he talking about? Jesus came as a man so that you and I could become children of God. And God gave them long before they started. And if you're a Christian, this was before the foundation of the world. Before you did anything good or did anything bad, God did this for you. Verse 17, you go down there, we'll get there next week. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Who are these people? Who are these children that he became like? It's you and it's me. Still find that fascinating, don't you? And Christmas was almost seven weeks ago. How quickly time has gone. But I want you to know that the incarnation of Jesus is the visible proof that God keeps his promises. He actually came. It wasn't a figment of your imagination. He actually came. 
and, and, and he came for what? He came to deliver us from our own flesh and blood. We, we all have the same nature. Our human body has limits. But he himself, I want you to notice that. You may have that double emphasis in verse 14, that he himself came. It wasn't he plus an angel. It wasn't he plus a priest or a pastor. It was he himself. You want to know where Christ alone is in Hebrews? Look right there. He himself. And the Greek speaks that way too. You are saved because he himself saved you. How did you get saved? Because you prayed a prayer one time, you got dunked in the water? No, you were saved because Christ himself saved you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how you were saved. And he partook of the same. He came down to us and became one of us, but he uses, I want you to notice this here. Verse 14 has two words, at least in ESV, it has share, that children share in flesh and blood. But at the end, at least in the ESV, it has the word partook. Once you know, these are different words. Jesus shared with us, he shared with us the human nature, but he did not partake of the sin that came with that human nature. Did you notice that? You have a sinless Savior. You have a Savior who's gone through everything and yet without sin. What an awesome God that is. Buddha sin, Confucius sin, Baha'u'llah sin. Don't get me started on Joseph Smith. He sinned, David Koresh, fill the blank, sinned, but Jesus is sinless. And that is good news for you. But I want you to remember that he was a man just like you and me. He did not have a human body before he came. He was a spirit like the Father and Holy Spirit, but in time he partook of flesh and blood. Hebrews 10.5 says it was a body prepared for me, is what the... The scripture says of him, he was conceived in Mary's womb by the spirit. He, it was made specially for Christ. He grew, he developed, he matured, he increased in size. He needed food, water, rest, sleep. He had bodily functions like you do. He had dirt on his fingernails. He had blisters. He had calluses. He had dry skin that makes you itch in the wintertime. He had rashes. He had all sorts of sneeze and coughs. Maybe he even had COVID. We don't know. But the reality is he was sinless. Jesus slept. He wept. He felt all the pain in his nerves. Don't forget that on the cross. He really died, and it hurt physically as much and more so spiritually. But he was an average-looking guy. He was not Jesus Christ superstar on Broadway. Isaiah 53 reminds us that men hid their faces from him. He was not. <laughs> that's why that's why some pastors, there's an there's a, there's a Instagram, if you're into that thing, there's an Instagram handle called Pastor Shoes or something like that, where literally people take pictures of pastor's shoes, and it became a thing like five years ago. Brian and I, we're kind of this generation, and they took pictures of pastor's shoes, and they would say, man, that pair cost like $500 or $5,000 or whatever it was. I'm glad to have my $5 black shoes on for you this morning, amen. Pastor Shoes. If our Savior didn't care really what he looked like, it doesn't mean we're unpresentable or uncouth. But he was a very average-looking person. He had everything except sin. And friends, I want you to remind yourself of that this morning. He grew in wisdom and stature. He was born under a virgin. That's the great mystery of godliness that 1 Timothy 3.16 says. But look at verse 18 of chapter 2. You got your Bible still? He became... For he, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Because Christ came and incarnated, 
because he did that. He can see when the devil's attacking you, when Satan's coming after you, when he's sending his minions against you. He gets that because he lived that. What a savior he is. He came on enemy turf and he parachuted behind enemy lines and yet he still lived to tell about the victory. What was that victory? Second major historical event. You'll see it there in verse 14. What was that? He came, he incarnated. But secondly, there was the crucifixion. I, I am telling, the, I'm just being honest with you this morning. I cannot spell crucifixion. When I type this into my computer, I get crucifixion or crucifixiation or all sorts of things. So if it's wrong in your bulletin, forgive me. But what matters is this, is not how you spell it. What matters is what happened on that day. Look at verse 14. He says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is Satan. I want you to focus on that phrase, that through death. Jesus came, and that's great. Jesus lived among us. That's amazing. Jesus was sinless. That's awesome because he's the only awesome one. But it meant nothing if he just came for a little vacation and was a tourist to get the feel of what it is like to be a feeling of a human. He had to actually do something with that, didn't he? And what was that? That through death. The incarnation focuses on the person of Christ. The crucifixion focuses on the work of Christ. You often hear us say that, that it's in the person and work of Christ that you're saved, who he is and what he did. He was born to die. Go back to verse 9. Let's go back there for a second. Chapter 2, verse 9. Why did he come? It says in verse 9 that Jesus came. He was made a little lower than the angels. Namely, he was crowned with glory because of the suffering of death. Why? so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's why he came. Luke 22, 42 reminds us that Jesus prayed in the garden. And when he prayed, he didn't say, Lord, bring it on, I'm ready. He said, Lord, if you're willing, take this cup from me. What was in that cup? Was it the, the off-brand uh, grape juice we use in our Lord's Supper? No, might, you might think that at times. What was in that terrible cup? It was death. It was sin, it was the wrath of God, it was the terror of God, it was everything that should fall on us. On that cross, when he said, Lord, take this away, that through that death, the Father laid upon him the penalty, the dreaded cup of the wrath of God. And he took that cup symbolically and drank it down to the last for you and for me. He came, he was incarnated, and he died. And friends, I want you to know, and Amy will put this up, You've got to be careful with quotes like this because it doesn't mean everyone does this, but I think there's some truth here. Leonard Ravenhill, who was about the size of Leon, I mean this respectfully, Leon, he was like Leon's size. He preached his best sermons, Leon, in his 80s. That's when people started to know him. Leonard Ravenhill was a firecracker in the midst of fires. Well, this is what he said. He said if, the Jesus, if Jesus had been preached the same message that most pastors preach today, he would never have been crucified. And I want to be clear here. This is not saying that every church, of every pastor, of every place does not preach the message of Christ. I want to be clear on that. Sometimes we just, we get these hard sayings and we, but let's be honest too, there's also a most of our pulpits, a good majority of our pulpits that don't preach Jesus Christ. Do you know what our secret sauce is as Christians, guys? 1 Corinthians 2 says that Paul said, I came with one message. I came to preach Christ and Christ crucified. That's what it was. How do you reach people for Jesus Christ? You remind them of the fact that God sent his son and he was crucified for you. He died for you. He took the pain for you. What an awesome God. 
And if this pulpit ever gets away from if you, if you're visiting with us and you're looking around for a church, there are, you know, some of you, can I just take a side note for a second? I tell this to all the interns who come in. Nelson's heard this ad nauseum, but he'll, he'll live. We tell all the young guys or young girls who come to our church that 10 or 15 years ago, if you lived in the Northland and you went to a Southern Baptist church, you frankly did not know what you were going to get. The liberalism of William Jewell College, the liberalism at the time, 20, well, now 30 years ago of Midwestern, has frankly turned back to what we believe the Bible says. But there is a time when you went to churches here in the Northland that you might hear the name Jesus mentioned, but you didn't know what Jesus they were talking about. If you are new to the Northland of Kansas City, I want you to think and praise God with me across the board that I can look at churches and churches we pray for and say, we thank God because we know what they preach over there. We know what they teach. We don't have to guess if they're Cooperative Baptist Fellowship in disguise or they're walking down a road of liberalism, masks, and conservatism because they don't want to tell their church for fear of losing their job. When Paul and the writer, whoever the writer of Hebrews came, saying that the devil has been routed, it started at that cross, John 19, 30, when he said, it is finished. If you are here visiting, we are so glad you're here. And I want to make a promise as best I can, as long as I'm here or we're here, we're going to preach Christ crucified. Because that makes the devil run. Well, what about risen from the dead? Yeah, that's true too. But I want you to know that some people didn't even believe that the crucifixion actually happened. There are people today who believe that. Most of them are Muslims in our world today, but there are people who believe it never even happened. Friend, Jesus died for you. May our purpose and our message be to live out that every day by the power of the Spirit. Amen? May we do that to God's glory. You want to rout the devil in your life? Then hold on to the very basics of the gospel. That will be a great start. So what happens? He came, he was incarnated, he was crucified. So pastor, what's that mean for me? All right. I feel like an infomercial salesman with this, these, these titles, but the amazing benefit, number one, right? But this is even better. This is eternally a benefit for you. What is the first benefit? Number three, you'll see this. The amazing benefit is this, domination. Domination. Look at verse 14. Into verse 14. Here's what happened because he came and he died. Is that through death, he might destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil. You can stop right there. Destroy means domination, devastation, disarmament. It means to be of no effect. Jesus disarmed the devil and rendered him inoperative to the point where the children of God can now be saved. I want you to know that you see that phrase there, this may confuse you, the power of death, the end of verse 14. The power of death that the devil has. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that he has the ability to, to take us out of heaven someday to hell? Does that mean at our death, that, that as he stands accusing us, that God's going to say, hmm, you're actually right, Satan. This person who's covered in Jesus' blood, yeah, you, you take this one as a sacrifice. Let, let him walk the plank for you. Is that what's happening here? No. I want you to know that overall, God is Lord of life and death. We read in our Sunday school lesson this morning, if you caught all that, the sovereignty of God, that, that God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to run a rampant for a little bit but when it was time for Nebuchadnezzar to go out and eat grass in the field for seven years, immediately it happened. And immediately his reason came back to him, all by God's sovereign grace. But what does the devil have the power to do? He has the power to seduce, to tempt, and to draw. The wages of sin is what, church? Death. 
Satan, who's the author and instigator of sin, has the power of death because he has the power of sin in his grasp. So here's some things. And Amy, if you just want to put all three of these up, please, for those taking notes, that'd be great. What can he do? I'm not going to ask you to turn there for sake of time. But I want you to know, first off, that he can darken the mind. Satan can darken your mind. Isn't that a scary thought? This is specifically, though, referring to in the context of the power of God working in the midst of unbelievers. If you're not a Christian here today, your mind is darkened to Satan. I'm looking at my pastor who preached here a couple weeks ago because he, he gave this illustration to me years ago. You probably don't remember this, Willie, but you can't be a cat that walks on a fence between two bulldogs, right? You're either for Christ or what? Against Christ. You can't be Switzerland. So let me just put this out to you. If you are not a Christian and you know someone who's not a Christian and they look good on the outside, they're really working for Satan. Did you know that? That's scary to think. Even kids. Whoa. Yes, even kids. We'll get there in a minute. God has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the glory of God. If you're not a Christian here today and you are blinded and no one will ever get to see it until God opens your eyes. And Christian, remember that. You once were in darkness. You once were not saved. You once were under the power and, and, and authority, as it were, that Satan has the power over sin. And he didn't want you to see the light. He didn't want you to be like the blind man in John 9 when he said, I was blind, but now I can see. He didn't want that for you. And that's why no matter how much hocus pocus we do up here on the stage or on social media or in all the Christian events that we do, unless God's power comes on someone's life and opens their heart to believe, there no one will ever be saved. Because we are darkened in our minds. That's why going to every door and saying, hey, what do you want in a church? Let me write that down and go make a church just for you. Is absolute grotesque in God's sight. Because we're simply making us a world of fun, to use a famous phrase, over Jesus for people who know not Jesus Christ. Look, that doesn't mean at church we shouldn't have fun together. We should. And I pray we invite each other to each other's houses as you feel comfortable in this COVID time. I pray that you, you take the time to get to know each other here. But I want to remind you, we will never win an unbeliever to Christ simply by the way we do things as the world. Because the world is dark. He also defiles hearts. Acts 5.3, you remember the story? Anais and Sapphira come, and they're ready to give their money to, to Peter. You remember what happens? And Peter looks at them and says, he basically says, Satan has filled your heart with lies. Satan has the ability to fill your heart with lies about yourself, about your family, about your faith, about your church, about everyone. Church, can I just say this time out right now? If you're here today in our church, we have a zero tolerance policy for gossip at this church. Zero. Why? Because that is straight from the pit of hell. That's why. You have a, a beef with someone, if you need to talk something out, you don't go on a text message or a Facebook or whatever, you go talk to that person and you settle it before it be even bigger and bigger. Because we don't want Satan to have reign here, we want Christ to have reign here, right? And that's what it is. He also dominates will, 2 Timothy 2.16, that they're in the snare of the devil, held captive to do his will. John 8.34, Jesus said that we commit sin because we are slaves of sin. John 8, 44, he told the Jews at that time that you are, the fa your fa you are of your father, who? The devil. Whoa. That is true of all non-Christians. But I want you to know the good news. Amy, you can put up the next slide if you will. What is the good news this morning? That Christ came to defend us, didn't he? He came to defend us. 
And as he came to defend us, I want you to know, 1 John 3, 8 says, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He came to crush the head of the serpent. John 12, 31, now judgment is on this world. For the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up on earth, Jesus said, I will draw all men to myself, speaking of his death. All men, all children, all elect. Colossians 2, 15, Christ it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them by his death. What a God we serve. He's dominated Satan. You know, sometimes we get in a situation and we lose that fact. Guys, God has won the battle. It's over. Satan knows that. He's not on the mission. He doesn't know all things, but he's read the book. He knows it. And I want to remind you of that. And I want to put a missions moment up here for a second. What is the implication of all this this morning? Is that missions is hard work. Sharing your faith is a battle. But I want you to know this morning that missions is a mop-up, no-fail operation because what Jesus did. Every time you share the gospel, God's going to use it in someone's life, whether they reject him or they accept him. That's exactly what we know. Because God has dominated this world, we know that he will see all those who've been called to him come to know him. Doesn't mean we sit back passively. We aren't frozen, chosen missionaries. But we are actively involved. Missions is hard work. We have some of our missionaries coming back in the next couple months. You all know those details, some of y'all. And they're going to come back. We're going to have a child with them. Well, she has a child in her womb. The child hasn't come out yet, but you know what I'm saying. And they'll tell you it's hard right now. Man, mission work is hard. You sharing the gospel with your kids and grandkids is hard. But I want you to know, God has already won the victory. You be faithful and let God do the work in the heart. Number four, what's the last benefit? It's liberation, liberation. Look at verse 15. He says, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. Can I just be honest with you for a second? I have moments, as you do, don't you, that you're afraid to die. I, I, I haven't shared running stories in a while, but I'm afraid someday that some raccoon or coyote is going to come back for revenge and, and bite me to death as I'm out in the middle of the roads. I really believe that. My wife always, I, Peg and I have talked to, Peg's looking at me because we've had this conversation multiple times, and she's back. It's good to have you back. She's with me. I have that fear of death of dying by, not by running or heart attacks from marathons, but just dying by animals attacking me at night because I'm in their territory. That's just the, de that's the fear of death I have. That's silly. But I'll be serious with you too for a moment. There are times, even as a Christian, when, when you think about your last, that you fear death. And friends, I think like anything in life, like worry or everything else, you're going to have those moments. But as a Christian, ultimately, you should not fear death. Why? Because Jesus came to deliver those who feared death and were subject to lifelong slavery. Christian, you have nothing to fear at death. Our brother Don, before he passed, was very clear, and we shared this at the funeral, when he passed, that he said, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to go home. He knew it with confidence. I'm walking out of here, not to some not-la-la -la land, but to Jesus himself. And that's the fear of death we don't have to have. Look, they can kill us, they can strip us down, they can take everything away from us, but they can never take our Jesus from us because of what he has done for us. All those who are in Christ, he came to save, have been freed. We have, look, we are subject to slavery and sin, and from our very wills, we are subjects to sin. We are born into sin. We are conceived into sin. 
I love all the baby chatter this morning. I am telling you, I do. And I hope you guys know that. That doesn't bother me the least. I love it. Tally and uh, Teresa are having a little chat back there. But I want you to know, we love all our kids. But parents, kids, if you're listening, I want to remind you this morning that you don't become a Christian just because your dad or your mom or your grandma is a Christian. You become a Christian because you turn your heart and your life over to Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And every day, parents and grandparents, we need to be reminded that from the youngest time, even in the womb, we are not free except when we come to Christ. We are slaves to sin, but Jesus came. He said, he who is free is free indeed, John 8, 36. Galatians 1, 3, and 4, God gave himself for our sins so he might rescue us out of this world. Look, we are in lifelong slavery. There's not an age of accountability where from age zero to age 7.5 or whatever it is that we're not accountable. From the womb to the tomb, we are born and conceived into sin until death. But I want you to know that you glory in your freedom from slavery for the fear of death. You are free from anything. I hate, I'll just say this, I, I love doing weddings for people I know, but weddings, just they zap you in a pastoral way, and in a good way, but it just takes it out of you. But you know what zaps you most of all about being a pastor is funerals. Not funerals for people that we know who are going to heaven. Funerals for people we know, and everyone else knows, but you can't say it because that's, you just, you got to walk that weird line that aren't going to heaven because they rejected Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian here today, you should absolutely, in your boots, be shaking at the fear of death. Because you have nothing. What are you holding on to? But I want to remind you this morning, there is no fear of death if you're a Christian. To quote an old Puritan psalm, the death of death happened in the death of Christ. If you haven't read that book, it'll take you until you're about 75. If you're already past 75, round up 15 more years and you'll get there. The death of death and the death of Christ is a book worth reading because what it reminds us is, is that every death is gone. Christian, you walk out of here triumphant. Look, it's okay to plan for your death. It's okay to consider the options for your death. It's okay to write a will for your family. It's not what's being said here. But what is being said is that today you should not fear death because Christ has defeated it once for all. Amen? What's this mean for us? We'll close with these. What's this mean for you? Number one. Christian, the reason, the, and Amy, if you just want to put both slides, or both up on the same slide, that'd be great. Thank you. The reason the devil hates you so much is because Jesus loves you so much. God loves you more than Satan hates you. And God's love for you is greater than any, any hate Satan has for you. I want to remind you of that this morning. Christian, you are loved in Christ. You are treasured in Christ. Church at Tower View, we are not perfect. We have our spats. We have, whew, we have our problems. But one thing we have together is we have a love of God who binds us all together in Christ. We may disagree on mask or no mask, COVID or no COVID, or worship songs or hymns, whatever, but together we're in Christ. Our love for each other should be the same as the love God has for us, that we love each other more than we hate each other. Should we have to say that in church? Yeah, we just said it, because sometimes it needs to be said. And the aim of the devil, secondly, is simply to get your eyes off Christ. You know, it's kind of like, can I use a baseball analogy for a second? Because the Royals are going to win the World Series this year. Are you getting excited for that? I hope you are. <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> but I want you to know, it's kind of like, when you're, if you grew up playing softball or baseball, what does your, your coach tell you? 
when that ball comes at you, you are to keep your eye on the... And if you're in left field, you're not supposed to be picking your nose and looking up and, you know, whatever else goes on. You're supposed to keep your eye. But if you're in the stands and you know there's an opposing batter coming up and you know, you, you say all sorts of things, hey, batter, 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 swing, batter, you know, you, you get in there and you do all that stuff. Because your job as a fan is to get their eye off the ball. Satan's job is to get your eye off the very fact that God is good and he saved you in Jesus Christ and you're loved and cherished and beloved forever and ever. If he can do that, he's won the victory with that. Number three, I'm just going to remind you of this. Amy will put up three and four, but there's no easy place to serve a Jesus follower. The death has been defeated. The domination, the liberation has happened. Those are the amazing benefits, but the aim of the devil is the same. He's going to make every place to serve Christ hard. Brother Brian, I don't think, I, it's, it's, Lord is providential. We joked about this. The first month you came, you guys had a rough month with sickness and things. The moment you said yes to Tower View, it's like, whoa. It's like, it's just like it got piled on all of a sudden. And sometimes you feel that way. Church, I want to remind you, it's going to be hard to win Maple Park and Gracemore. It's going to be hard to go through conversations we need to have in this church to focus it even more on Christ. But I want to remind you, that's what God tells us. God is always going to give you more than you can handle. Don't let Hallmark be your theology book. God gives you more than you can handle because when he gives you more than you can handle, he gives you more grace than you can ever imagine to handle it. Number four, the devil knows if we never become honest with our sin and we'll never know the saving power of Christ. Look, if you're here today and you've not confessed your sins and you're not a Christian, I want to know the greatest lie the devil will tell you is that you're okay. You don't need that Jesus thing. If you're not a Christian, you need to be reminded that the only truth is that Jesus saves you. That's it. He is your Savior. And Christian, that goes for you too. If you're not honest with your sin before God, Satan's lying to you. You may not lose your salvation, but you can be out of the right relationship with God, just like you can with your spouse if you say a right or wrong word. Well, hopefully if you say the right word, well, you know what I mean. You get it. Number five, number six. If you are idle in work, you are active in the devil's work, Spurgeon said. When young men come into Nelson and I's office over over the years, or, or young seminary men especially, you know, seminary men, one of the greatest challenges, I know we have young years here, but it's looking at things on the internet they should not be looking at, is one of the greatest struggles that pastors have. Thank God, don't have that. And that doesn't mean I'm above it. But I want you to know that Often these men, when they uh, preach a sermon, you hear this from pastors all the time, when they preach a sermon, they go home, or the next day when no one else is around, that temptation is greater because they've given their all on Sunday. Look, whatever your temptation is, idleness leads to busyness. Our, our busyness, you, ah, idle hands don't always do the best for you. Christian, I would encourage you, if you live by yourself, if you're a widow or widower, I would encourage you to make sure that you have a plan that when you're thinking about things, considering things, or, or tempted to sin in ways, that you have a plan of escape. Go back to the Word. It is written, Satan. It is written. It is written. Quote the Bible back to him. Do all you can. Fight it. And church, the same is true for us. When we get our focus off the landscape of unsaved people in our neighborhood, we start to go like this with each other. It's not what Christ has. Let's be busy for Christ's sake. Finally, this. The greatest way to stink at spiritual warfare is to think about the devil much more than you worship Jesus Christ. We've talked about him a lot today, but I hope we've exalted the Savior more. This morning, 
we sing our last song, O come ye poor, come ye sinners poor and needy. Brian, it's hard to preach this morning. By the grace of God, it's hard to preach. But I want you to know, church, we're excited about God's work here. But when we come together, don't be tempted to think about anything else about except what Christ has done for you. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? You're not going to defeat Satan in your own strength. But I want to remind you what the writer of Hebrews reminded is that he, when he came in the incarnation at the crucifixion, he secured for you, Christ did, all domination, and he liberated you from the fear of sin and of death. As we get ready to sing our last song in just a minute, I want you to think about that. If you're listening online or outside or if you're inside and you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, we'd love to chat with you. But I want you to know Satan has no power over you that Satan cannot crush. Whether that's ongoing sin, whether that is something of, of, of temptation or trial, God is greater still. doesn't mean there won't be struggle. doesn't mean there won't be tears or hardships or, or, or literally reorienting your life at times to see Christ exalted on high. But Christian, I want to remind you of that, that God has won the victory. And church, I want to remind us corporately that the gates of hell shall never prevail against the church of God. We may not have resource or time or money or strategy at times, and it may look like we're like a ship without a rudder. But I want to remind you, if we stay faithful, even when we're faithless, God remains faithful. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning, I want to pray for those in our hearing midst, whether now or sometime later, that you would help those struggling with sin. Father, in our church, to know that because of what you've done, You've dominated Satan, you've liberated them, that they can break free. And at times, that's going to be hard. It's like pulling back a wound uh, on an already broken up arm. Father, it's going to hurt at times. But Father, you can. Father, I want to remind our church, the power of the gospel is able to unite us more than anything else, that we have more in common in Christ than we have superficially about teens and interests and hobbies and whatever else we like in this world. Father, we are so grateful that you've routed the devil. He will come back with guerrilla-style tactics, and it looks like he's winning for a minute. But, Father, may our eyes look up to heaven where you are seated and you are holy, holy, holy. We sing this last song, Come ye poor, come ye sinners, poor and needy. May we sing it to your glory. Thank you for this church. May this just encourage someone today that there are those without Christ. Draw them by your grace and your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.